We'll be reading Genesis chapter 1, starting from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The second passage will come from chapter 2, which is probably the next page over. We'll be reading... Verse 4 to 25. Genesis chapter 2, starting from verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water, the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havla, where there is gold. And the gold of this, that land is good, but Delam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, great God, Heavenly Father, you are our creator. Help us to know that deeply today. 
in order that we may know what it means for us to be your created people, what it means to be truly human. Um, for us, this is a, a difficult space for us uh, if we try and figure out our significance and meaning and purpose. Uh, so wherever we are, please uh, meet us and, 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 and speak to us and comfort us. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who am I uh, and do I matter? Uh, why am I here? Uh, what is the meaning and purpose of my life? Now, I wonder whether you've ever asked those kind of questions. Uh, and I wonder, when is it that you began thinking about these kind of existential questions, right? Uh, for me, it began, I think, when I was around 10 years old. Uh, for some strange reason, one night I went to bed and I wondered if I were to wake up one day and it wouldn't be me. Uh, what does it mean to be me? Uh, uh, what happens if I lost a sense of who I was? Uh, who was I? And what did I mean? And what was I supposed to do with my life? Uh, for quite a few nights when I was 10 years old, uh, I, I remember uh, thinking about that as the last thing before I slept. Uh, a bit weird, isn't it, for a 10-year-old? But that's, that's me. I wonder what is it for you, maybe in high school or maybe now, right? In this phase of life as a uni student, trying to figure out who you are and do you matter and what is your purpose? Now, I don't think it would be far off the mark to say that every single person in, in history has interacted with these questions sometime in their life uh, to be able to know their significance, their value in the world, and to be able to know their meaning, their purpose in the world. And it begins all the way from a child, isn't it? Uh, crying out for care and the comfort of a loved one, to be fed and to be embraced, to know that they mean something to someone, uh, to children going to school, uh, the, those nervous few days of wondering whether someone would sit with them at lunchtime, someone would choose them in their sporting team, right? someone who would study with them, uh, and into adulthood. Right? As we, we start work, uh, workers, we, we seek to be noticed and to be praised, and perhaps more importantly, to be promoted and get a raise. Right? That's how you know that you're valued, isn't it, in the workplace. Every single person strives uh, to find meaning and purpose in their lives. Now, for some people in our world, they are trapped in circumstances that they cannot change. But inside, I'm sure they wonder whether there is more to life uh, than the lot that they've been given. Perhaps uh, the poor Ukrainian friends that we, we have out there who, who are stuck in a situation that they can't change, it doesn't mean that they're not seeking for meaning and purpose in the midst of being trapped. On the other extreme, there are people of privilege, right, who have a very clear purpose in life that they're striving after with all the resources that they have available to them. And then there are the rest of us. Most of us here are still on a journey, isn't it, of discovery, uh, on, uh, on this search for meaning, exploring different reasons and ways right, to live our lives. Now, if uh, I were to give you a few moments now, uh, which I won't, but I'll, I'll, I'll pose it as a question, for you to, to ask and to answer, what is, what is it that makes you feel significant? Uh, what is it that, that makes you feel like you matter? Um, what is the meaning and purpose uh, in your life? What are you striving for? I wonder what kind of answers you'd have. And perhaps I would also ask you, where did you get those answers from? Where do you go searching for the answers to these questions? Now, traditionally, and for a long time, and I mean like hundreds and thousands of years, the traditional approach to finding answers about our identity and our significance and meaning is to, to look uh, at the people around us. Right, to look at people around us, uh, we are who we are in relationship to the people around us. And immediately, that's our family. And then after that, it's our tribe or our society, isn't it? 
So we would define ourselves often by being a father or being the oldest son or being the, the middle child, right? the poor middle children. Um, or I'm, I'm single or I'm married or I'm divorced or I'm widowed. Or we'd say I'm a student or a worker, I'm a retiree or I'm unemployed. Or perhaps you define yourself as a stay-at-home mom or a teacher, an accountant or a nurse. Or perhaps you say, I'm black, or I'm white, or I'm brown, or I'm mixed. I'm lower class, middle class, upper class. Right? This is the, the traditional way, isn't it? To, to look at the people around us, uh, and, and the, the roles and the activities that we do are, are based on that. And the, this kind of identity formation, it brings about a problem, isn't it? It brings about this tyranny of comparison. Right, where do I stand in relation to other people? What roles do I have and don't I have? And therefore, where do I stand in the pecking order of my family, of my tribe, of my society? Now, in recent times, we've seen a big shift, haven't we? More and more, we are told to look within ourselves uh, to find answers to our identity. Um, we're told that I'm free to be whoever or whatever I want to be. I don't have to conform to traditions or the expectations of other people. No one gets to impose upon me who I am and what I can or can't do. And this new way, uh, it sounds so freeing, doesn't it? It sounds so liberating. It, it seems to promise so much. But here, we find another problem, don't we? The burden of choice, right? The burden of choice. It brings about the burden of having to, to figure out for ourselves and to generate for ourselves our identity, of having to, to determine what is it that will make me feel significant and meaningful? What is it exactly that I'm meant to be living for? We have to figure all that out by ourselves. And the question is, where, where do I begin in this search? Uh, and, and have I got it right? As I figure things out along the way, uh, have I got it right? How will I ever know right, that, that this is what it really means to be significant and to be purposeful? It's a bit like opening up IKEA flat pack, and we've all bought IKEA furniture here, I'm sure. Some of our homes are like IKEA warehouses or storefronts. And you've got 100 over pieces there, and there's no manual. Or you build a house on shifting sand. Or you set off on a journey, and if you're an old person, you don't have a Refedex, right, street directory. Or if you're a modern person, you don't have a GPS right, to be able to guide your path. There's no reference point, there is no foundation. How will you ever know that you've arrived? You see, we were, we were never meant to live uh, with either of these burdens, of the tyranny of comparison and of the burden of choice. Right? Both are crushing. And that's why God's word to us in the book of Genesis is so important. You see, Genesis it doesn't just ground us theologically, right? it comforts us existentially. It, it is God's truth that frees us to be truly human. It satisfies the mind as well as the heart to know what Genesis tells us about who we are. Now, back in last week, we looked at Genesis 1, and it began by telling us that this is God's world. Right? He made it all, he made it really good, and he made humans as the apex of his creation, and he made us for a reason. And all that we need to know about significance and meaning it comes from knowing that we are created by God and to know why we are created by God, right? That's where significance lies, that we are created by God and then why we are created by God. And we're freed from the needless burden uh, to, to compare ourselves with other people or to, to, to meet up to expectations that's pressed in on us. 
and we are also free from the burden to have to create our own identity. All we need to do is to enjoy the blessing of being given significance and of being given purpose from the Creator who knows best. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, 3, last week, the creation of the world was given to us from a perspective of a, like a wide-angle lens, um, right? It was a, a God was clearly set the stage uh, in Genesis 1, simply by speaking, God made the world, then He formed it, and then He filled it uh, in, in six uh, very stylistic, very uh, orderly days, and then He rested, right, on the seventh day to show us what is the ultimate purpose for creation, now, we get to this passage today in Genesis 2, verses 4 to 25. We'll give it another perspective of creation. This time, it's reframed. There's a zoom lens, right, being used here, and it's fo- focused in on humanity. So have a look. Chapter f- uh, 2, verse 4. Let me read to verse 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, once again, here in chapter 2, we're given a picture of a world that is unfilled, right? It's like back in Genesis chapter 1, between days 3 and 4, right? The things are a watery mess, uh, and there are no bush or plants. And the key reasons are given to us uh, in verse 5, right? It was untended to, at this point, by God and by man. God had not yet caused rain to fall on the land, uh, and there was no man to work the ground, now, God is already there. He could cause the rain anytime he wants. The essential missing element is man, isn't it? If it wasn't already clear in Genesis 1 that, that man is the apex of creation, then here it makes it extra clear right? that God, um, that the essential element to the creation that God wants to make is man. So God created man, and he, he, he grabs dirt from the ground. He forms man with his very own hands. And then into this man, he, he breathes his very own breath right into this person, this man, this creature that he has created. Now, you've got to understand, if you know your Bible, that God, uh, being a spirit, doesn't physically actually have hands or have a physical breath. But this is an imagery given to us in a way that we can understand that there is an intimacy in the fact that God uses his very own hands Right, to create man, and then he puts his very own breath to, like, to, to enliven man. And so we see that made by God's very own hands, we are precious to God. And having the very breath of God in us, we then possess that which makes us truly special. No other part of creation, no other creature in creation is physically, is personally made by God, nor has the breath of the divine in them. And this grounds us, doesn't it? Because this gives us the, the starting point, the foundation to be able to know who we are, as what it means to be truly human, to be precious and special. Now, having created man then, God, God then goes about uh, forming a special place right, for man to live in. Uh, a garden in a place called Eden. Now, I notice very clearly, if you read carefully, that, that Eden isn't the whole of creation, right? There is the whole of creation, and then out in the east of creation, there is a place called Eden, and in this place called Eden, there is a garden. Can you see that? 
So there's a garden in a place called Eden in the world, okay? And that's important to notice. Um, it's a place of abundant life and provision, isn't it? There seems to be a seemingly a limitless supply of the, uh, um, uh, a countless variety of food that pleases all of the senses. It's good to the eyes, it's good to the taste. I'm sure it, 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 uh, it, it feels good too in your hands, right? You see the buffets that we go to at the Sheraton or the Shangri-La, as great as they, they are, they're nothing, right? They're boring and bland compared to what was on offer in the buffet that is Eden. I was going to put up some really nice photos of buffets, but at, you know, at 11.30, we're all feeling a bit hungry. That wouldn't be very loving, would it? But you see, all that buffets that we have in the world, nothing compared to the original Eden. And in the Eden garden, there is the tree of life. Uh, humans are not intrinsically immortal. Not only God is, but there in the garden, there is a provision for us to be able to eat from a fruit that will sustain eternal life. And then there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll come to this in the next point soon enough. And finally, we see uh, in this passage, a river flows out of Eden right, to give life to the garden. And then from Eden, it splits into four, seemingly to give life to the world, right, to the rest of creation. And so we see that God created the world and made this garden in Eden especially for man, right, for man. And so we continue to see how precious man is. And as we read on, not only is man precious and given a garden to enjoy, he's given a purpose for what to do, right, in this garden. So let's look at the next one, right? Verse 15, uh, purpose. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now this is the privilege of being made in the image of God, Right? This is the privilege of being like God, right, to have dominion. Uh, as we heard back in chapter 1, verse 26, if you flip back very quickly, you'll see that when, when God had created man in his own image, what did he say straight after that? I give you dominion, right, over all of creation. And then in verse 28, I, I, I give you the, 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 the right to fill and subdue the world. And then here in chapter 2, there's told that he's to work the ground and he's to keep it and to care for it. Now, what does it all mean? Let's put it all together, right, to see that we've got clarity as to what's going on, okay? God made Eden to be a place of provision and life. Man is created and put into the garden of Eden. Man is given instruction to tend to the garden and to keep it well and to care for it so that the provision of life that God gave into the Garden of Eden will continue, presumably, right? To, to care for it, to allow it to continue to be a place which produces this big buffet of blessing. And then, and this is the important part, he is to expand, isn't it, the garden into all the world. He is to have dominion over all of creation. So it would seem that what's happening in Eden, right, as, as humanity multiplies, they are to spread the blessing of life of Eden into all of creation, right? Man is to continue to do what God had begun to do in creation, to bring more and more of the world under the rule, the dominion of God. This is the privilege that was given to man, right? To bring blessing and life to the whole world. Now, I want to pause for a moment to think about some implications of this, right? I think Genesis 2 is an affirmation of work of every kind that serves the world, right? I think that's what it shows, that work that brings some kind of goodness to creation or to creatures and especially to other humans. I think 
we are created to be workers. But ultimately, work as originally intended wasn't just about doing good work that is good for creation and creatures and people. It was about making a world, uh, it's about doing God's work. Right? It's not just about doing good work right, that blesses the world, it's about doing God's work, to work under God uh, for God's purposes and for God's glory. It's not just good work that we're meant to do, we're meant to do God's work, or we're meant to do work for God's purposes. It wasn't just about making a better place, a world, a better place of provision and life. It was about making a world full of God's image bearers who will do the work of God in bringing the blessed life, right, which involves uh, doing God's work. Now, as we all well know, and as we'll come to see next chapter in great detail, this original intention for work has been greatly damaged by sin in the fall. As we just sung before, in the song before, um, all the announcements and all that, we live in a world that's shattered by sin. Our image of God has been shattered. It's still there, but it's disfigured big time. And our creation, our, it's also broken. And we see next week in Genesis 3 that work is cursed. Disconnected from God, work in this world is hard. Work is often done not for the good of creation or for other creatures or for other people. Because of sin and death, work in this world, as good as it still can be, we are told that it's ultimately still in vain. If you want some uh, fun reading before sleep tonight, go and read Ecclesiastes, a very cheery book, that emphasizes this point, that because of sin and death, because this world is going to pass away, then all that we do in this world is in vain. But worst of all, worst of all, the work that we do in this world now doesn't bring about the blessing and life that God intends. Right? It's good for the world, but it doesn't bring about the true blessing and life that God intended in the beginning. And that's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is doing a new work, or He has done a new work through Jesus. You see, it is only Jesus' work that gives blessing and life. Right? When, when Jesus uh, lived uh, in this world, uh, lived a perfect life of obedience, he, he gave His life as a sacrifice for sin uh, in His death, and then he rose again to defeat death. It is this work of Jesus that restores the blessing of life that God intended for us to have. And so then, in light of the gospel, we read this in the New Testament about work. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain, your work is not in vain. See, the work that we do in this world can still be full of goodness. Some of you are, are, are great accountants that can sort out the mess of numbers and make sense of it. Others of you are great healers, right, through physio, speech, doctoring, nursing. Some of you are great teachers, right, to be able to form our young children into, you know, mature adults. There's a lot of great work that we can do in this world. But it won't carry on into the life to come. However, the work of the Lord the work of sharing the gospel, of bringing people back under the rule of God, see, that work is not in vain. Because that work of bringing people to Christ, that work of growing people in the likeness of Christ, will carry on into eternity. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about work. Uh, there's a whole sermon or five that can be preached on about that. So I'll leave it there for now. But if you do want to speak more about work, uh, please do come and chat with me. And I think Steve preached on work at the Clay Retreat last year. He may have recorded it as well, so you can ask him for that. 
Anyway, uh, let's carry on, right? Looking at the passage here. Having been given then a clear purpose, uh, God now gives one singular prohibition, right? One singular prohibition. <clears throat> now, we must be very, uh, we must understand what has been said up to this point. The context is so important. Right? Man is given this one incy, mincy, teeny, weeny prohibition in the context of abundant provision, right? Of overflowing provision and, 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 uh, and permissiveness, right? You, you can do so much. Rule over the whole creation, all the animals, and you have all this food to eat, all this permissiveness, all this provision, and one inny, inny, weeny little prohibition in contrast right, to the provision. But it's vital, isn't it, that it's there. It's so small, but it's vital that it's there. You see, this tree, uh, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is the marker, I think, for genuine relationship with God. It's the one little marker to see whether you actually really wanted to worship and love and be loyal to God or not. So let me ask you, uh, and this is a question I'm sure you've asked yourself, right? how do you know whether someone really likes you or loves you. How do you know whether someone really likes you or loves you? And not, not just using you, right? You're not just someone who's there um, uh, to, because you, are, you benefit them in some way. So as uh, parents, you know, we, we often wonder this, don't we, right? Whether our children are just using us. And now when they are babies, they're just using us. You know, they use their mum for milk. Right? They use the, uh, the parents, they cry to get changed. There's probably not a lot of love and loyalty you know, as a newborn. Uh, but as they get older, we expect a few more evidences that they're not just using us, but they actually love us. Yes? Many children here? Don't use your parents, all right? It's not good. Um, even as friends, don't we? We wonder, right? Are our friends just friends of convenience? Uh, are they just nice to me because of the stuff that I can do for them? Maybe some of you here, you know, you're the straight A students, you're the one getting sevens, uh, and people are, are friends with you because they want your notes, right? Because they don't want to lect attend lecture and they want your summary version. They want to be able to cheat off your assignment when you do the research, right? Are they just using you, classmates, colleagues, right? What, how, how do you know whether they are genuine or whether they are fake? Well, I think a lot of us know that we, we kind of have little tests, don't we? Uh, little signs to be able to tell us whether someone really loves us and likes us or not. So, you know, when a child, when a, when a friend uh, sticks by you when things are tough, when they have to make sacrifices uh, for you and it costs them to be your friend, that's when you know they're more than just using you. They actually like you and love you. And same with our children, isn't it? When our children make deliberate attempts on their own initiative without having to be told, they give us something that costs them. I remember when uh, Maya, my, my second child, when she was two, uh, we were eating Hello Panda, because we love Hello Panda in our family. Uh, and uh, there were two Hello Pandas left in the packet. Um, and so I thought, hmm, okay. So I gave both the Hello Pandas to Maya. And then I asked her, could I have one, right? And uh, she gave me one Hello Panda. And I was like, ooh, that's nice, right? But at the moment, it's just fair, right? Two, one each, that's fair. Not necessarily love, right? So then I thought, hmm, let me try this, right? I'm going to ask her for the second Hello Panda and see what happens. And so I did. Maya, can I have the other one? And then she's like, sure. Oh. Right. Okay. That's when you feel the love, isn't it? Now, I was a good dad, and I ate both. Uh, no, I, I, I gave her both back to her, right? 
Now, on one level, this single prohibition is what this is kind of about, right? It's, it's, uh, this is what this single prohibition is about. It's a bit of a test, isn't it? Man is given overflowing abundance, but this one act of restriction, this one call to obedience, gave man a chance to show love and loyalty. It's kind of like that little test. But I think on another level, it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. You see, if you understand what the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is, then you'll be able to see just how, how, what is on, on offer here, what is being asked of humanity. You see, this, this fruit uh, of, the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a divine trait that belongs to God and to God alone and not to man. Now, if you think about this idea of the knowledge of good and evil, how is it that God possesses this quality called the knowledge of good and evil? Well, God possesses it by virtue of being the determiner, right? He's the one who decides what is good and evil. So then, to take this fruit called the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to take from God what only belongs to God. It is to say, I want to replace you, God, and I want to take on the role of deciding for myself who I am and what I can or can't do. That's what this fruit is about. Uh, This tree poses the question, will you love God? Will you be loyal to God? Will you let God be God? That's what this fruit's about. To eat the fruit of this tree, then, is to reject God, to reject our creator, our life giver. And so it's not hard to see, then, what the consequence, as we find out, is certain death. For to reject our creator and life giver is to reject life itself, isn't it? Now, you see, the purpose of humanity isn't just to do God's work. It isn't like God created us and said, go about and fill the world and subdue it and enjoy of creation by yourselves. I think, I think this tree is there to show that there's a relationship with God that is primary, that you can never be living in God's world without being in relationship with God. You cannot be doing the work of creation and living your life without reference to God as the one who is the creator, the one you ought to worship and love and be loyal to. Now, this emphasis on relationship flows then not only from God, but also to people. Uh, and this is the next point that we see in the rest of the passage in verses 18 right, to 25. Uh, it's not just about relationship with God, but it's, there's an importance in having a relationship with other people, partnership. Now, let me say right up front that these eight verses, right, that you, you, we probably could preach a whole sermon, maybe even three sermons, uh, on the topics that are raised in these eight verses. Now, many of you will study this passage in your fellowship groups this year. Uh, We've covered uh, quite a few of these topics in Bloom and Grant, our men and women's ministries over the last few years, and we will continue to cover it over the next few years. So I'm not going to touch on every single thing, okay? Uh, I'm going to focus on this passage in light of this chapter, right, to show you what it's saying in the bigger picture. And here we see that being truly human involves being in relationship, okay? Being human uh, involves being in relationship. In verse 18, we see that God ha- uh, man has been created, uh, but he is alone, right? And God says that this is not good. It's the first not good since Genesis 1, right? Uh, the first not good in creation. Now, notice very clearly and very carefully that it doesn't say that man was lonely, right? Which just means to, to be sad. There was no one there to love him and to hang out with him and right? to make him feel good. Right? The problem isn't loneliness. You look carefully, right? The, pro- the problem is aloneness. You see, lo- loneliness could not be the problem because man had God. 
How could you ever feel the sadness of loneliness if you had God? Uh, that alone would be infinitely sufficient and immeasurably and eternally satisfying, right? To just hang out with God forever. It's not a loneliness problem, it's an aloneness problem. So the issue then is alone in what? Right? Alone, to be alone means to be on your own. To be lonely is to be sad that you have no friends, right? So what is he alone in what? Well, clearly it's alone in the, in the work of God. Right? He's alone in doing the work of God. That's what we just read, isn't it? He was given the instruction, the singular man, to do the work of God by his alone. And so we remember, back to Genesis 1, 26, this was, this was never God's intention, right? Uh, uh, in chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, uh, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Together as one humanity to do the work of God. And so here in chapter 2, this picture of humanity consisting of man and woman is kind of expanded, right, and explained to us. Man uh, needs help, right, to do the work of God. He can't do it alone. He needs a helper, someone to do the work together with someone to have children with in order to multiply and fill the world, someone to enjoy intimacy and this unity, this deep connection, a, a co-worker, a partner, a friend, have a life filled with uh, all the relational joys of love and laughter and romance and realness. Now, let's dig in a little bit on a couple of the details. Like I said, I won't go through everything, but a couple of details I want to point out. Firstly, Notice very carefully that the fitting helper is not, uh, is not and cannot be one of the other creatures. Right? That's made very clear, isn't it? She has to be of the same stuff, the same kind as man. One who shares the very same image and likeness of God. One who is in every way, in terms of value, equal. Equally precious and equally purposed. And so just as God formed preciously man in his own hands, so also he forms woman with his own hands, pulling from the man's side to create woman of the same substance, the same value as man. But secondly, we notice too that there's something different, right? There's something different. She's a woman. There is a difference in gender. And she's a helper. There is a difference in role. Now, having said that, now, like I said, each of these points could go with a, a, a whole seminar or multiple sermons on these issues because uh, there are issues that are very big. They have been discussed and debated and conflicted over, uh, over uh, decades and centuries. So I'm not going to wade into these two issues uh, now, but I really would love to have a chat with you if this is an area where you're particularly concerned or struggling about the issue of gender or the issue of role. Uh, I know that a lot of people have been hurt uh, in this space. There's a lot of confusion. Um, and perhaps there's even a lot of misunderstanding as to what God's Word does or doesn't say about this thing. And of course, there's always our own experience as well, isn't it, of, of, of working through uh, all of these things. So please do come and have a chat with me or with someone you trust if this is a difficult area for you. But one thing I do want to encourage uh, all of us to consider is this. Are we willing to let God be God? That's really, at the end of the day, the big question, isn't it, that we're asking ourselves as we come to God's Word, 
Are we willing to let God be God? Will we let God determine how life should be? You see, in a fallen world, as fallen people, uh, those questions aren't just intellectual questions. They are existential questions that are very hard. Some of us want to live God's way, but as fallen people, we find it so hard to accept what God says or to live it out. Right? It is a difficult thing to be able to live God's way. So let's uh, keep working on it. Right? Let's keep thinking about it. Let's keep trying uh, to understand what is it that God says. But at the same time, let us realize that to live God's way is the best way. It's the best thing we can ever do, even though it will be hard. Now, returning to the bigger picture here then in Genesis 2, what we see is that men and women are created to do the work of God in relationship with God and in this marriage relationship between man and woman. And so we see, first and foremost, that in marriage, uh, a husband and a wife, they enjoy a, a deep intimacy and unity, but it serves a higher purpose, doesn't it? Uh, to do God's work. Right? Uh, they're not just meant to be uh, you know, if I can use Mandarin for a while, two-person world, right? That a relationship is about people staring into each other in this uh, slow-mo K-drama embrace, right? Forever. No. Right? They're, they're meant to be put together in the service of God. That's the higher purpose for marriage. All of that intimacy, all of that union is for a higher purpose. And part of that purpose is to have children, right? Because they're meant to be fruitful and multiply, and so we see that families, and we enjoy all of the love and joys of being family, but our family life, our family is to be raised for a higher purpose. We're not just meant to be this family unit that is like, you know, tight, and we are like loyal to each other, and we just do our own thing, and we care for ourselves. No, we're meant to enjoy all of the goodness of being family for a higher purpose, to do God's work. And so we see that communities... Right? Multiple families coming together, made up of babies and children and teens and young adults and older adults and singles and marrieds. We are to pursue and enjoy relationships in community, not to be insular and focus on, on the earthly pleasures, but for a higher purpose, to do God's work. And so whether you're an individual or you're a married couple or whether you're a family, or whether you're in a community of God's people, we're given the, the gift of so many types of relationships, so many ways to give and receive love, but we're given all this, not just to enjoy it within ourselves in some insular way, but we're given it so we can be in partnership together in the work of God. And we all have a role to play in whatever age or stage of life we're in. I wonder whether this is what we're on about as you think about uh, the age and stage of life you're in, like in the church, this, in this congregation, I think the youngest looks like about six, seven, yeah, all the way to, I won't mention who the old people are here, um, but there's all the ages and stages. Some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us are uh, widowed, some of us are students, some of us are unemployed, some of us are working, some of us are retired. I wonder whether we've been thoughtful all right, about our purpose. How much thought have you given right, to being in the service of God and the work of the gospel? Many of us here are young, and the great thing about being young is you have a lot of friends. 
right? You go to school, you've got instantly 20-something friends in your class, maybe another however many in your year, and then there's all these people you can get to know, right? Uh, when you get older, you've got no friends, okay? Then you go to work, and you might be in a cubicle all on your own. So sad, right? You're doing uh, programming, maybe. Maybe we go for lunch, and maybe someone will talk to you for five minutes, right, if they're not on their phones. So as a young person, you've got a lot of opportunities for relationships. You've got all this time and energy. Your responsibilities in work is low. But of course, this is offset by not knowing as much and not being as wise. So in this phase of your life, why not invest energy and time into growing, right, and learning and trying things out? This is the time of life to grow courage, to be brave, to, to bring up the fact that you're a Christian, and maybe even share the gospel in a simple way to your friends or invite them over to church. When we move on then, past being a child and, and into maybe university, and the work starts to pile up into working life and family life, and the responsibilities grow, there are greater demands on our time and energy, for sure. But how much of us have transitioned on in life being thoughtless about the purpose for the next phase, the next stage of our lives? How much thought and prayer and counsel have you, have you sought after to shape your life, your adult life, your married life, your family life in such a way that enables you to invest in relationships for the sake of the work of the gospel? Now, I'm not, let me be clear here. I'm not saying that everyone should give up their secular work and become full-time gospel ministers and talk Jesus 24-7. I'm not saying that because we're created to be workers, right? To, to, to do the work of creation is, is, part of, is still part of what we, we live in. But given the fall and given the, the, the work that is not in vain, the work of seeing people come to know and believe and grow in Jesus, then effort must be put into investing in relationships that serve this higher purpose, this eternal purpose of seeing people come to Jesus. So I wonder whether us who are getting busier have been thoughtful and prayerful and sought counsel about how to manage our time and energies in such a way that we can keep living life for God. And finally, and it's great to see some of the older generation people here as well as online, uh, the work demands are maybe lower now. The kids have left the home but there's still a handful, yes, I know. There are other challenges of health and other responsibilities, but I wonder whether you've been thoughtful how to use your later years to be serving God and His gospel purposes. Well, let's wrap things up. We begin today by asking about what it means to be truly human, and that's what Genesis 2, I think, answers for us. Uh, in your search for what it means to be human, where have you gone so far in life to find the answers? Perhaps you've suffered under the tyranny of comparison. Perhaps you felt the pain of not meeting traditional expectations, or perhaps the pressure of having to, to exceed ex expectations. Because after all, you're Asian, not a Bijan, for instance. That kind of weird pressures right, to be a certain way or maybe you felt increasingly burdened, right, by choice. You know, you've been hearing all the new ways of thinking about how to define yourself, how to be meaningful, how to be purposeful, and, and you've just experienced this burden, this, how, how daunting and how shaky and how unsettling it is just to figure it all out for myself when I, I don't really know everything. How can I figure out who I am by myself? And even if you haven't yet felt the crushing weight of both of these approaches yet, 
I hope that you'll be able to see how these approaches, they cannot and they will not give you the meaning, the purpose, the significance, the identity that you strive for. Because only God can do that. I hope you can see how maybe not in your own experience yet, but maybe in your own experience, but certainly in the experience of the people around you, that this tyranny of comparison, this externally driven pressures, right, to conform to certain standards in society, or the internal pressures of having to decide for yourself who you are, I hope that you've been able to see how they don't work. They don't work, and in fact, they harm so many people who strive for that. I hope you'll see that in God's word today, that to be truly human is found in our creator, in God. He has made you special. He has given you purpose. You don't have to go searching for it. It's been given to us as a gift. See, this is the foundation for life, the only foundation that can ground us, that we can build our life upon. This is the only way to the life of blessing uh, and life that God created for us and saves us to enjoy in Christ. Let me pray. Our Creator God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, not just that it satisfies our understanding of what it means to be human, but it comforts us, it, it feeds our soul, it, it assures us that we don't have to buckle under the pressures that are placed upon us by our family or by our tribe, by our society. Neither do we need to be burdened by having to work it all out for ourselves in this endless search for being the genuine me. Instead, we are given the comfort and assurance that you know best because you are our creator. They were created precious to you. They were created with a clear purpose. So whatever hurts and burdens that we, we have right now, whatever confusions and misunderstandings, we pray for your help by your spirit to help us work these things out, to be able to understand what you have said to us in your word and to be able to believe in what you have said and to enjoy the peace and comfort of being precious and purposeful. As we carry on in our lives, for some of us we are young, for some of us we are in the middle ages of life or later ages of life, help us to be thoughtful and prayerful and to seek counsel for what it means to not just live life our own way, <clears throat> to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong, what is important or not, but to be able to see that we are in relationship with you, that we are in relationship with each other, that we've been put together to enjoy all of these relationships in all of the different contexts that we find ourselves in, in all the ages and stages of life, in order to seek after the higher purpose of doing your work. So please help us, Father, we pray, and to live this blessed and full life that you've given and saved us to live. For this we pray in Jesus' name.